Welcome to Oplum Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today, Santiago Saboski talks to Ruth Bihar and Marjorie Agosin, both celebrated scholars, talking about the creative side, combining and writing from their personal experience, both Jewish and Latina. For more information about today's talk, go to hciopenplaza.org. Welcome, bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides a todos a Open Plaza, a program of HCI, the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Today we have two wonderful speakers with us to talk a little bit about Latin Americans, a Latino, a Latina, Jewish identities. Uh, so I'm going to make a short introduction of the two speakers, Ruth Behar and Marjorie Argosin, and then we are going to jump into a conversation that hopefully is going to cross all the borders that they cross in their works, and not only the borders in terms of identities, of immigrations, exiles, and, uh, and, and journeys, but also languages. Uh, so Ruth Behar is the Victor Jaime Parera Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan at Arbor. She was born in Havana and grew up in New York City after her family fled Cuba. Her family has a mixed background. Her paternal side is Sephardic Turkish. Her maternal side is Ashkenazi Eastern European. She is the first Latina to receive the MacArthur Foundation Genius Award. And since then, she received multiple awards, including Guggenheim and Fulbright. Dr. Behar publishes both ethnographies and literary texts, including essays, poetry, and fiction. Her work center in studying of gender, identity, and immigration. And one of her last books that I welcome everyone to check out that just came last year is called Letters from Cuba. Marjorie Argosin is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in Humanities and Spanish at Wesley College. She is a Chilean-American writer who left South America with her family after a 1973 coup in Chile. She received numerous awards, including the Gabriela Mistral Medal of Honor, the Latino Literary Prize, and the UN Leadership Award in Human Rights. She's a very prolific writer of academic work, poetry, and fiction, a edited collection of key Latin American poets. Her work focuses on the role of women in Latin America, in Latin America during the authoritarian regimes, and other works social justice and human rights. One of her last books, and I will also encourage everyone to check it out, last year is The Maps of Memory, Return to the Butterfly Hill. So Ruth and Marjorie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let me just start a little bit asking a few questions to start a dialogue and a conversation with both of you and jump and crossing the borders that you so wonderfully cross in your own works. Uh, HDI and Open Plaza is trying to present and amplify voices of Latino, Latina, Latine, and Latin American intellectuals uh, in order to actually explain a little bit about what we are going uh, in, we are going on in the Latin American and La U.S. Latino Latina uh, landscape. How do you think that what is the role that Latin American Jewish intellectuals play? or cool play in this Latin American and Latino la, uh, landscape? So uh, I'll, I'll begin. Thank you, Santiago. And I'm always um, happy to, to be with my dear friend, Ruth. We, we have done so many uh, programs together and exchange of thoughts and, 
and, and beauty and, and creativity. Uh, I think we live in an age of uh, excessive information, but at the same time, disinformation. So what we can do so much to contribute uh, to what it means to be a Jewish Latin American and to be a Jewish Latina. They are, I like to say, and I feel that they are two different things. Uh, there is a particular identity to the Jewish Latin American writer. Uh, she or, or he always writes in Spanish. Although now there is a very interesting revival for some writers where they mix Ladino with Spanish. And a very good example is a Mexican writer, um, Miriam Moscona, or another writer from Bosnia that emigrated to Chile, Andrea Sheftanovich. But basically, we, we are uh, a very, very small minority of writers and of Jewish people. The Latin American Jewish population is less than 1% of all of Latin America. And in Chile is also less than 1%. In Chile, there are 15,000 people that um, say they're Jewish or belong to a congregation or a community. And um, I like to mention this because people don't know and I think it's very important. There are 400,000 Palestinian Christians in Chile who used to be very good friends of the Jewish community, but no longer, because they have brought the Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to Chile. Having said that, I say that because I like to use the metaphor of David and Goliath. Uh, David was a, a king and a poet, and all kings have always been males then in ancient times. Uh, but the idea is that we, we are uh, an uh, a minority that is struggling against all odds, the political odds, the anti-Semitism, the desire to acquire invisibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, visibility in an invisible world, but the contributions are multiple in poetry, in prose, in autobiography. So the Latin American Jewish experience is extremely rich because if we could just put it in a nutshell, it speaks about a foreign minority, an immigrant minority, trying to adapt or create space in a new environment or a new land. So it's the typical story of immigration. The Latina Jewish experience, I think is, is also very different uh, because I think the Latino writing community had a voice in the 70s when you know, uh, Sandra Cisneros, Jude Julia Alvarez, Esmeralda Santiago appear in the scene. But I think that they were looked as anthropological, Ruth can speak about that, as anthropological writers who told a story of poverty, of immigration. And Americans like to see that other people are very poor and helpless. And they like to see how they arrive to America and they thrive. But that narrative, we know it has failed. So basically, uh, the Latina writer writes in English and then adds some sparkles of, of Spanish. And I think it was uh, due for me, it was uh, necessary to do this to be part of a commercial world of publishing so that you would 
leave their invisibility and become visible to American audiences. Uh, the experience of the Latina uh, Jewish women writers is, uh, first of all, we're also very few. Um, Ruth writes in both English and Spanish. I write only in Spanish. I'm always translated. And um, I find myself as a writer always struggling against very, um, uh, very uncreative minds who says, well, you wrote about Chilean exile, but th that means you're, you, you didn't write about a Jewish theme, therefore a Jewish audience will not read you, but they are foolish because uh, the reason why I'm in Chile is because my family had to leave Europe uh, because the Nazis were going to murder them, the few that remain unmurdered that survived. So it's, I, I like to say that to be a Latina Jewish woman writer in America is extremely complex and very difficult to insert yourself in a particular sphere. So I'll let Ruth continue with this, these ideas. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Yes. Thank you, Marjorie. That was amazing. I'm so glad you started because I always get inspired from responding to you and the things that you say. Um, so let me also add that it's such a pleasure and such an honor to be in conversation again with you, Marjorie and Santiago. Thank you so much for moderating and the three of us bring together such an interesting group of, of perspectives. Um, Santiago from Argentina, Marjorie from Chile and me from Cuba. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about Latin America, we have to also realize that Latin America and the Caribbean are a mix of many, many different countries, many different immigration patterns, many different indigenous peoples, and so on, and a different history also of African slavery in, in, in the different countries. And of course, this was very important for Cuba. So, so we really have to be careful not to generalize about Latin America, just as we can't generalize about Jewish people also, because there's such diversity in both communities. So I think when I think about this question of Latin American and Jewish, um, you know, for a long time we were talking about multiculturalism and I felt that Jewish Latinos, Latinas, that we brought kind of another layer of multiculturalism, you know, to the conversation. Um, but now we're also talking about diversity and inclusion and things like that. And so I think that, you know, those of us that, that are Jewish and Latina, Latino, we, um, we in some ways introduce a kind of shock value, you know, into the conversation, um, you know, certainly when I was growing up and I grew up in, in New York, you know, as, as a Cuban immigrant, um, it was always so shocking to people when I would tell them that I was Cuban and I was Jewish. That was just something that people couldn't quite understand. They'd say, oh, well, are you, is one parent Jewish and the other one is Cuban? And I would say, no, they're both Jewish and Cuban. And then I had to tell the whole story of how the Jews got to Cuba and why were there Jews in Cuba? So I was always retelling my history. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that I went into anthropology was to understand cultural diversity and understand different communities and understand um, immigration. And, um, and just, you know, as Santiago said in the introduction, you know, in my own family, I was always aware of diversity because my mother's side of the family was from an Eastern European origin and Yiddish speaking. And my father's side of the family was Sephardic from Turkey and they spoke Ladino and Spanish. And so there was already so much diversity in that mix. And then you add that to all of the diversity that is, you know, Latin America. Um, and the Caribbean and um, and also Jewish people play a different role in the different countries. 
of Latin America and the Caribbean and were influenced by the, the, the mainstream religion in each of the countries that we're from. And so, you know, in Chile and in Argentina, there, there's been, you know, really strong anti-Semitism, right, because of the presence of Nazis, you know, actual Nazis in, in those countries. But that wasn't really the case in, in Cuba, definitely in the late 30s. They did introduce some Nazi agents uh, into Cuba, and there was you know, a small uh, Cuban Nazi party um, in in Cuba um, in the late 30s. But the overall population is not anti-Semitic and doesn't even really hold those ideas, and that has a lot to do with the fact that there's a strong African heritage in Cuba because of the legacy of sugar plantations and the legacy of, of bringing enslaved Africans from, um, from West Africa. So when I think about my Jewish identity, my Jewish identity as a Cuban person is also very informed by that African heritage. And, you know, I feel like you can't be Kuwana without being aware of Yemaya and Ochun and, you know, all of the deities that come from the Yoruba um, pantheon. So, you know, so there's also that kind of sense of identity as being, um, you know, very mixed and very diverse. And my Jewishness is informed by some knowledge of this African heritage that I inherit as being part of Cuba, being part of the history of Cuba myself. And the way I think about all this is that um, Cuba offered a refuge for Jewish people that were struggling to get out of Europe at a moment of increasing anti-Semitism, increasing poverty, the pre-Shoah, the pre-Holocaust moment, and places like Cuba and, you know, and Chile and Argentina and other places in Latin America were a refuge um, for so many um, Jewish refugees. So. Um, so when I think about that, when I think about Cuba, I think about the gratitude um, that I have for Cuba, and that informs my identity as well as, as a Latina. It's like I, I want to be part of this community because this is this is the the you know the community that or part of the community that saved my family that allowed me to exist and to be born. And so I you know very much want want to be want to be included. Um, in this community, and it's always been um, an issue for me, you know, that I be included, um, and always a fear, not so much today, because I think now we've really fortunately broadened our ideas of identity, and, you know, and these boxes that we had before, here's the Latino box, and here's the Jewish box, you know, we've, we've really, you were talking about borders before Santiago, and, you know, those boxes, fortunately, you know, have been challenged in recent years, but, you know, but initially it was like, no, you're either Latino or you're Jewish, you can't be in, you know, in both of these identities, and I, I struggled at the university where I teach to be thought of as Latina because, you know, the administrators couldn't understand, well, but you're Jewish, I mean, you know, and, and they were literally doing, like, purity of blood tests on me. I mean, not testing my blood, but sort of asking, well, what's your lineage? I mean, your lineage is sort of more European than, than Cuban. And, and I thought, this is crazy. So, so many Cubans also um, are, are children or grandchildren of recent immigrants from Spain, you know, who got to Cuba in the early 20th century. So they're, they haven't been in Cuba for centuries either. But there was this assumption that if you hadn't been in Cuba for centuries, then were you really a Latina? And, and this, to me, was very, very heartbreaking um, when I went through this whole process, you know, many, many years ago of the university deciding whether I counted as a Latina you know, or, or not, because I was Jewish. Um, and it was really kind of a form of anti-Semitism. Um, and it was one of one of my colleagues who is Kuwana, 
um, stood up for me, who are not, you know, Catholic, and she stood up for me to the administration. She said, well, if Ruth isn't Cuban, then that means that every Jewish person in the United States is not American. You know, it's like, and suddenly it was like, well, you know, yeah, you know, they, they really, you know, she had to kind of open their eyes to this because it was so interesting how, you know, how they were thinking about these different identities. Thank you so much, Ruth. You know, now when I hear both uh, Ruth and Marjorie, you were speaking, I think it's very interesting how you actually portray something that actually comes up in your work. But uh, when Marjorie was talking before about uh, a history of a very good relationship between the Jewish and Palestinian community in Chile before the insertion of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and Ruth, you are mentioning about how actually a Cuban, a Cuban person, you know, came to your aid. I would say. Uh, uh, a, a recognized Jewish, a Cuban person came to your aid, is uh, how the Latin American Jewish experience offer the possibility of, uh, of uh, creating other ones, other relations, uh, that they go beyond what Americans understand where Jews belong. No, and of course, it is always with tensions. It is always with with complexities, as Marjorie was saying before. But we create other. Uh, fraternities, other relationships, other alliances. So I, I was wondering when, when I think a little bit about this and these uh, other friendships, you know, the friendships that they are not uh, perhaps uh, accepting the mainstream, but they are there and they are part of our history. Uh, both of you are so well trained academically, both of you all, you know, uh, hold endowed chairs in two wonderful universities, but both of you have a true commitment of expressing through fiction and poetry uh, your works. Uh, and I wonder uh, uh, why, you know, why, um, uh, you know, uh, even though of course you have written a lot of academic work has been very influential, but why uh, poetry and uh, poetry, fiction, uh, and in your cases, including memory as a key factor, but not the only one, uh, are so important in order to transmit these Latin American complexities that for me, I will just say because of my work, I am particularly interested in Jewish relationship with other others that there are not a relationship that, that, uh, that people will expect, no? But why? Uh, why this format of literature? Why this format of fiction, the form of poetry? Why this is a way of interpreting the Latin American Jewish experience that perhaps other uh, formats will not be able to explain? What do you think is the case? Well, uh, okay, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, first of all, uh, Ruth and I are in the academy, but I don't know if Ruth feels the same, but I don't belong to the academy. And I've always been tempted to write an expose of where I teach. I will become an instant bestseller, but I don't do it out of um, a strange sense of loyalty uh, for a place that I've been for more than 30 years. Huh? I teach in Wellesley, but I am not a Wellesley academic or um, uh, wealthy alum, especially because of my age. Uh, the alums that are my age uh, were very, maybe a lot of them extremely conservative, but our students now are pretty extraordinary and they are, um, uh, they belong to a great diversity. Now, I think what Ruth and I um, have, have in common is that 
we are uh, creative writers in the academy. Sometimes it's accepted and sometimes it's not, but I am always looked with tremendous suspicion. And now that I've gotten older, I think I'm a little bit wiser, not all the way. Like my son says, mom, you should become like a, like a Buddhist monk and you will know all the answers. But I feel um, that I'm looked with suspicion because I'm always writing and I'm always publishing. And they think a person that writes so much is because she neglects her other duties, like comedies, like teaching. It's not true. I write because I have to write. I have no choice but to be a writer. It's not that I said I will write. And so many people say, I want to write. I want to uh, perfect my writing skills. Well, I don't know if I wanted to ever perfect my writing skills. But when I was eight years old, I just longed to express myself with writing. Uh, why do I write poetry? And I started writing fiction late in my life. Uh, Ruth wrote a lot of ethnographies and then uh, young adult novels and we both have a similar uh, trajectory. Uh, because um, today I was reading uh, an interview with a great Brazilian writer in the Paris Review, the great Brazilian writer, um, Elise Lispector, and she said she was always interested in looking at insignificant things and writing about them, like just like Kafka, she wrote about a cockroach. So I'm thinking a poet looks at detail, life in the margins, the invisible. Um, there is an exhibit on Cezanne at the MoMA, and I read the review, and Cezanne questioned, does an apple love? Does a cup of coffee have a soul? And I say, Cezanne is a poet. This is why he asked these questions. So poetry has, has allowed me to ask, what is the difference between objects and the soul? Uh, what, 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 does, what does silence mean? Is it what, cannot, what can be forbidden or is omission? All the things that I'm interested in writing appear to me in the form of poems. Yeah. At the same time, I've written memoirs of my parents and one very brief one of myself, because again, I, uh, this is where the part of the Jewish Latin American writer comes alive. I wanted to document the life of Jewish minorities in the south of Chile, uh, where four SS men live. I wanted to create an archive of memory for them, my parents, and for others. And the other subject that you mentioned, Santiago, you mentioned poetry, uh, memoir, right? Uh, memory for me is, um, as a writer, is almost like a, a mandate, a commitment, um, a desire that nothing should be for, forgotten or sometimes forgiven. There are some things that cannot be forgiven, that you cannot forgive certain things. Like you cannot forgive that the Nazis sent one million and a half children uh, to the uh, gas chambers. You cannot forgive that. Uh, so memory, uh, memory is uh, a very complex uh, way of understanding the world because it, it's ambiguous, it fluctuates, it's like an ocean. It's like a river, it has fluidity. But 
a writer that doesn't engage with memory or like for example, the book that I wrote, just wrote Letters of Cuba, is a writer that is indifferent to, to history. And I think writing should go vis-a-vis -vis history, both personal and collective. And when you ask us our first question, I think Jewish Latin American writers are braiding the personal and the collective. They are writing about immigration, the Holocaust, but they are also writing about the history of Europe and Latin America. They're doing both. And that I think is their greatest contribution. But um, I like to teach uh, and you, uh, I like um, the contact with the young is very important to me, but the world of academics is very, very ungenerous for it's the majority of the cases. There are slivers of generosity, but I have found a lack of generosity, mistrust, and I don't know how to say this in English, but mesquinda. And I'm, I am generous and I will always be generous. And I always feel disappointed and betrayed like a 14 year old, but I've come to believe that this is who I am and I'm not gonna change to fit the market or the uh, false ideology or political correctness. I'm going to be myself. And that has been very hard to be because to be yourself is to be truthful. And now we live in a, in a era where truth matters very, very little. But like uh, Yuval Harari said, people are not gonna change by learning the truth. People are gonna change by listening to stories. So I think Ruth and I uh, are offering the stories of what we think is, is truthful. Thank you so much, Ruth. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Marjorie. Um, I also want to start by saying stories are so important. That's really one of the most important things. And it's it's one of the things, speaking now as the anthropologist, <laughs> that, you know, storytelling is, is one of our most important human characteristics to be able to tell stories and listen to stories um, as well. So I, I'd say my relationship with the Academy is similar to Marjorie's, but not exactly the same. Um, for me, you know, the Academy was very difficult when I first entered into it, when I first became, you know, a young professor. It was very hard for me. And one of the hard things was the language of the Academy, the, the use of jargon, the use of language that was alienating, the use of language that wasn't poetic, that didn't let you enter, you know, that created walls, really, and language that was also elitist. And, you know, and I always was aware that my parents didn't go to college, you know, they immigrated when they were very young. And it was, you know, me and my brother were little children. And they didn't have that opportunity to have a university education. And I was aware that, you know, the work that I was doing and the work that I was being told to do was in a language that my parents could never understand. And so, you know, here I was as an anthropologist going to Spain and to Mexico, and then eventually to, um, to Cuba. I also spent some time in Argentina as well, teaching at the University of Buenos Aires. So I, you know, I traveled, you know, quite a lot. And I was writing about these experiences and I realized I'm being asked to write in a way that my own parents would not be able to understand. Is this right? Is this the way I should be writing? Is this the way I should be communicating what I'm learning? So that was kind of the first sort of disjuncture for me with the academy was I had to find 
a language in which I could speak and in which I felt others that I cared about could understand me. So, and it was one of the points I made many, many years ago in a lecture that I wanted to do anthropology in such a way that my mother could read what I wrote. And then I joked that unfortunately, she then started reading all of my work. <laughs> and then there were things I couldn't keep private anymore because she could understand everything I was writing. Um, but anyway, but that that's an aside. But, but, you know, for me, it was definitely this struggle with language and trying to find a way to speak in the academy that was more open to, um, to other people that didn't, that didn't create the, um, the ivory tower kind of thing. So for me, it was about creating a niche in the academy, struggling against the academy to create that space that I felt I needed, the space that I wanted to create as an anthropologist. And one of the first experiences that I had was thinking about vulnerability. And I wrote a book called The Vulnerable Observer, you know, thinking about how vulnerable we are when we do anthropology and listen to other people's stories and put ourselves in all kinds of strange situations with strangers, with people we don't know. And, you know, we go and ask people for their stories in different parts of the world and, and we trust, you know, that they will let us into their worlds. And then I also thought about how vulnerable we make the people that we're studying as well and asking them to tell us about their lives and to open up to us, to total strangers as anthropologists. So the vulnerability thing was very, very important to me from very early on. And for me, it was kind of the struggle with the academy and the struggle with anthropology. And, you know, could I create a voice and a niche within those spaces to open them up um, a little bit more. And so that that's kind of, you know, where, where I come from and um, and finding a way to to be listened to, um, to have my work be respected, even though when I was doing it, you know, 30 years ago or so, people were very critical of what I was doing. And now now, interestingly, some of my most, you know, objectivist colleagues I, to, to sort of think of a you know of a neutral way to say it many of them now turn to me and they say oh, i want to do more personal work like you do like how do you mesh just as marjorie just said braid the personal with the historical how do you mesh these things how do you mesh the personal with the historical with the ethnographic with what you're listening to and witnessing and so how do you how do you create those you know those junctures and so interestingly more and more people have moved in this direction but when i was starting to do this work it was definitely looked down upon and and criticized and um you know and it took a, a little bit of courage to continue doing that work and for me it was because i couldn't do it any other way and one of the things i used to say is well if they throw me out of anthropology i'll find something else to do i'll be a photographer i'll be a writer <laughs> you know i had this kind of attitude that, that literally it was kind of like a club and i might get thrown out but i had to do that work because it was the only way I could conceive of doing my work, right? So I, I had to do it that way. Um, and so for me, um, poetry and fiction, memoir writing, those are genres that I have always placed on a pedestal. And, you know, when I went off to college, I thought I was going to be a, a creative writer. And then I took an anthropology course and decided to go in the direction of anthropology. And, you know, part of it was that I fell in love with this idea of witnessing other people's stories, you know, through ethnography, through field work and spending time with other people. But I also know deep down that I wasn't sure I was good enough as a writer, you know, and I, I set aside the poetry and the fiction dreams and said, you know, let me let me do something else. Also as an immigrant, 
I was aware that I needed to do something a little bit more practical, not that anthropology is so incredibly practical, but, you know, a little bit more practical than, than you know, than writing poetry and, and fiction. And I went in that direction and I put aside those dreams of being a writer, um, you know, because I, I just looked up so much to those authors that could create that kind of magic on the page. And I thought, maybe, maybe I'm just not talented enough to do this. And I set it aside and went into anthropology. And then um, I, you know, I started traveling to Cuba um, in the early 90s and going back to the place where I was born and connecting with so many people of my generation whose families had chosen to stay in Cuba. And it was such an emotional experience that that was when I started going back to poetry. I had written poetry in high school and in college, and then I gave it up in graduate school. And when I became a young professor and I started writing poetry in Spanish and English, um, when I um, began traveling to Cuba in the early 90s, a time of crisis, just like now Cuba's undergoing this time of deep crisis. Um, and I was there and it was so emotional, things like going, I was sent by my, my great aunt and great uncle asked me to go to the Jewish cemetery on the outskirts of Havana and Guanabacoa. Their son had died of leukemia in the years before the revolution and, you know, before 1959. And he was buried in, in a Jewish cemetery in Guanabacoa. And they said, and they hadn't been back to Cuba since they left in the sixties. And it was one of the most heartbreaking things for the family that this boy who had died at the age of 12 of leukemia and been buried um, in Cuba and that he couldn't leave Cuba with the rest of the family because his grave would always be on the island. And they said to me, could I go back and photograph the grave of Henry? And I went looking for this grave and found that the grave was in perfect shape. But, you know, they were concerned that maybe it would have been in, in some way mistreated, mishandled, and it was fine. And, and I had trouble taking pictures of it. My This is before cell phones. And I, my camera broke and I couldn't take a picture of the grave. And that was what I had been, you know, entrusted to do. I had to borrow a camera, go back another day, take a picture of this grave. And that experience and finding out that the Black woman who used to take care of him and his sister, who, you know, who survived, who's still alive. Um, the black woman who used to take care of this boy when he was alive and saw him die, she would go visit his grave once a year to remember him and knew that Jews left stones on the grave. And she would do that without being asked to. She just, that was just something that she did. So talk about memory. So this was someone of a different background but who had been close to the family maintaining memory for us even though we were no longer on the island yeah. well this experience was so deep and so emotional so wrenching that I, I couldn't write about it in an essay or as an anthropologist I had to write about it as a poem and it was called the Jewish Cemetery of Guanabacoa and that was one of my first efforts to write poetry again and and from there I began to write many more poems in English and Spanish, encouraged by a very dear friend in Cuba who makes handmade books. And he's also a poet, Rolando Esteves. And I was writing these poems and he said, well, you're going to have to write them in Spanish because I want to read your poems. And so I had to start creating Spanish versions of these poems that I was writing um, in English. And that was really where I started with that encouragement from a very dear a person who became a very dear friend in Cuba, knowing that he was reading these poems and he thought they were good enough. That was all the encouragement I needed. And I often tell people, you just need one person to encourage you in your work and to read your work for you to for you to be a writer. And that that was why I felt what I felt with Rolando Esteves and, and that moved me back into the realm of poetry. And then from there, 
um, eventually moving into the realm while telling lots of personal stories, little memoir, sort of mini memoir stories, I would say, where I would mix the personal with experiences in the different places that I traveled to and the different place uh, people that I've met, and then eventually moving um, to fiction. And, you know, as Marjorie was just saying, you know, really wanting to create this beautiful um, phrase that you use, Marjorie, um, an archive of memory. And I think that was um, something that became very important to me. I had spent many, many years creating an archive of memory for other communities that I met in Spain and Cuba, Catholic communities and people that I became very close to and really came to love and to respect. And I was creating an archive of memory for them with my ethnographies, with my photography, etc. And then towards as I was reaching the age of 60, I said, well, maybe now it's time to tell these family stories, my own story as an immigrant child, and then in letters from Cuba telling the story of my grandmother as a young immigrant, you know, going to Cuba and, and mm-hmm. working to bring the rest of the family um, to the island. Thank you so much, Ruth and Marjorie. You know, when, when you are speaking, uh, actually, I see when I was reading your work, and um, I started to think that actually you use this format because of the complexity of your experiences and what you study. But also, I think it's not just because of the complexity, but also because you want to communicate. You want this work to be meaningful, to be meaningful to people outside the frameworks where we are. And this is exactly a little bit what Open Plus is trying to do to amplify these voices to actually create communities uh, through uh, beyond the limits of the jargon we always see in academia and this is why i want to ask you a, a little bit of what you already talked about but um uh, about uh, your your relation with those places where one comes from no what are uh, the relation the spiritual the cultural the literary uh, relations that you still have with those spaces that you that you left or you were pushed out you know and i know your experiences are different no in one in one in one place uh, in case of mercury they needed to flee because of the coup on the other hand as ruth uh, you say many times you were not forced to flee cuba but was clearly the committee understood that they needed to look cuba no so it had two different situations but at the same time uh, it is related with the social economical situation in Latin America and the political changes that happened. So what are your connections with those spaces, especially Cuba and Chile? Uh, those spaces where you, I believe you, if you agree with me, and spaces that you come from, are not the only spaces you come from, but there are two spaces that you strongly come from. So um, thank you, Santiago, and thank you for uh, your previous commentary, Ruth. Um, I've always believed that you have to write from the space you come from, and usually it's a space of love, not not necessary. But I am very rooted in my Chilean childhood that it was a, a very privileged childhood with family, with friends, with um, unplanned gatherings. In America, everything is very much planned and dates are, and dinner parties are set in a calendar months apart. But now with the pandemic, people are learning that you cannot plan such things anymore. But I am rooted in 
the woman, Ruth mentions a black woman that took care of, of Henry in Cuba. I'm rooted to all my, uh, the nannies that were such an important part of my imagination, my political life, because they believe in magic. And magic really is the unexplainable, you know, not necessarily uh, getting a rabbit out of a hat, but it's all what is perhaps uncertain. I have a very uh, extended family and I'm very close to them. I'm close to my cousins. Of course, I was very close to my uncles and aunts. They are all gone, but I feel they are still, or my grandmother, but they are still in Chile because I remember them through my family. Uh, I have developed an extensive network of friends, academic colleagues, fellow writers, and I always feel so uh, enriched by, by my conversations with them when I go visit them, because there's something that has to do with the commonality of culture, with the generosity of uh, having true friends. I feel here I have thousands of acquaintances that you see maybe once a year, but the concept of friendship in America is very different. And I'm also rooted to Chile's history. I'm concerned now about uh, who are the actors of the new constitution, who will be president. Um, I hope the violence stops, but I hope the gap between the rich and the poor changes. But I'm really connected to Chile. I eat uh, Chilean food. Um, my sense of time is very much like a Chilean, but I always feel I have to be on time and not change dates because uh, there is a rigidity in the American mentality. Uh, uh, it's, uh, there are tremendous creative forces in America, but tremendous rigidity. Um, so I feel I belong to Chile, I belong to Latin America, and I, when I see the ocean or the Pacific Ocean is, of course the Pacific Ocean is the same as the West Coast, California, Oregon. But when I look at that ocean, a little bit manicured, I long for the other ocean that is kind of disorderly, boundless. Um, and I look at, I, I consider myself, uh, uh, my identity is tied uh, to Latin America, to, to the feeling this society um, produces, divulges. Uh, Latin America is a very complex place, very chaotic, uh, economically with great disparities, but I've never found such magnificent and generous people. Mm -hmm. And it's like in, when you have so much turbulence, somehow the goodness um, prevails. So I am tied to that. I, I go to Chile a lot. Um, I'm always in contact with uh, my friends, uh, with absolutely everyone in the country. Thank you so much, Ruth. Yeah, yeah. So for me, Cuba is an island of memory. Um, in a poem, I call it also an island of tears, Una Isla de Lagrimas. Um, and so it's an island of memory for me. At, at first it was because I left very young. I was five when we arrived in the United States. And um, so I was too young to really have a lot of memories, but I had a lot of inherited memories. 
And like all Cubans, you know, had to leave with just one suitcase. Um, my, my mother and my grandmother packed the photographs, the family albums, the photographs, these black and white photographs from the 50s. And that was how I first knew about Cuba was through all of their memories, the stories they told about Cuba. And they were always talking about Cuba, always remembering. And then there were these black and white pictures. And in the pictures, I could kind of imagine what their life was like. So for me, Cuba was an island of tears, an island of memory, an island of imagination. And then I went back and started, you know, seeing it with my own eyes. And that was very important. And, and it involved something that was very powerful at the time, which was separating the culture of Cuba and the people of Cuba from the government of Cuba. And this, you know, the politics of that was very intense and continues to be very intense in the Cuban community. Do you go to Cuba? Do you not go to Cuba? If you go to Cuba, you're supporting an authoritarian regime then and now that argument continues. Um, my own argument was that I wanted to keep going back to Cuba and that nobody was going to keep me from Cuba. No political leader would keep me from going back to the place that I was from. The island was mine, the culture was mine, and the people were not necessarily synonymous with the government that ruled them, right? And so that was how I justified my, um, you know, my return trips to Cuba, which have been many. My parents, who um, fortunately are still alive in their mid 80s, they've never been back um, to Cuba. They they don't they don't think it's it's appropriate to go back to Cuba. They they definitely were very upset with me in the early years. After 30 years, they, obviously they got used to it, um, but um, but they you know but they themselves would not um, would not go back, and they always are both a little bit of upset and a little bit afraid for me when yeah. I go to Cuba for obvious reasons because they left Cuba at a time when they really it wasn't just that they chose to leave it was really um, my father you know was actually being uh, persecuted for not wanting to turn in the keys to the store that he was managing for my mother's uncle and he was actually held up at gunpoint and so um, so they really had a reason um, to leave Cuba. And, you know, my father basically said, we're leaving. You know, my mother, no, you know, my quiero ir. And my father said, well, I'm leaving. This is this is not a good good place for me anymore. And and so um, so we left. And so every time I go back to Cuba, you know, once I'm in Cuba, I, I feel that I, I come alive and I flourish like, like a flower that suddenly is being watered again. And I'm like, you know, so, so lively and, and so happy to be there. Um, but at the same time, every time I'm about to leave Cuba and I have to go through the the customs and the immigration, um, you know, desk um, at the airport in Havana, I'm always a little afraid. They might say, sorry, you know, we're not letting you out this time. Um, so there's always that fear. I both want to be there and I want to go back and I love Cuba and I, you know, love the experiences I've had there. But then I'm always a little afraid of, of that bureaucratic authoritarian, you know, government that continues to rule the island and that right now, you know, we're seeing these protests precisely against that, that government and the, pro and the protests coming from within. But in Cuba, I feel, as I said before, that Cuba opened me up to poetry again, to storytelling, um, to the magical world, as as Marjorie um, put it as, as well. I mean, all of that came back to me. Um, also returning to language, you know, hearing thousands of people speaking with a Cuban accent <laughs> was, was kind of amazing, you know, because I, of course, I heard it growing up from my family. But then I spent all this time in Spain and all this time in Mexico where people talk Spanish very, very differently. And then I heard that, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, everybody speaks this way. There was just something <laughs> so... <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's so incredible about it and, and and so nourishing it was like oh my god you know this aquí están los cubanos you know who, who talk you know Sandra Cisneros once described it as like they talk as if they have cotton inside their mouths. Oye, chico, vamos a la tienda. You know, and it's it's like, and it was just so wonderful to hear, um, to hear the language again, and to discover so much of the literary heritage that I didn't know about, like you know, reading the work of Jose Martí, who of course I should have read, but you know, the the versos sencillos of Jose Martí, which are amazing, that he actually wrote in New York because he himself was an exile in the 19th century. Um, from the colonial um, Spanish um, Empire um, at the time, and he wrote Los Versos Sencillos actually in the Catskill Mountains, um, interestingly enough, in Spanish. Um, and then discovering other other poets like Dulce Maria Loinas, whose work became a huge inspiration for me. So from a literary perspective, kind of finding these literary roots that turned out to be a very, very um, important inspiration. The spirituality, again, of learning about Santeria, learning about Regla de Ocha, as people call it um, there, and also spending a lot of time um, with the Jewish community um, in Cuba and actually studying the community, learning the stories of the Jews who stayed on the island or the Jews who have recently converted um to judaism as well and kind of thinking every time i'm talking to them you know that might have been me i you know if we had stayed would i be part of this community today so so finding all those mirrors in cuba um has also been um a very important part of this of this journey that i've taken um to cuba and then connecting um and creating this whole community of writers and artists um, both on the island and beyond the island um, I co-edited a book called The Portable Island, Cubans at Home in the World. And, and so, you know, so for a time it was going back to the island and going back to the island, but then eventually realizing that the island has moved around the world and that there are Cubanos all over writing and creating and, and doing art about Cuba and relating um, to Cuba. So both the island as a real geographical place, but the island also as... Uh, as, as a moving island, as a portable island, um, is also kind of a very important way um, in which I think about Cuba and feel very, um, you know, very much a part of this um, of this uh, culture. Um, that again, that is all goes back to to the immigration of my grandparents in you know in in the twenties and thirties and uh, finding their home in Cuba, which would eventually allow me to be born there. And so, you know, as, as Marjorie was saying um, before, it's so important to know the history. The history is really um, what helps to define who we are today. So you have to really examine that history and understand that history to, um, to be able to, to really speak to your own identity. One of the things the Cubanos say to me, I'll just end on this, which I've always found very interesting. Um, they'll say to me, tú no te fuiste de Cuba, a ti te sacaron de Cuba. And so they always say that about me, you know, you didn't leave Cuba, you were taken out of Cuba because, you know, I left as a child. And so I've always been given this kind of special sort of role on the island, as have many others of my generation who left as children, but have chosen to go back yeah. and, to, and to see the island firsthand and to, to know it and witness it firsthand and to, in a sense, to develop our own memories, not just to um, accept the inherited memories, but to create our own memories of the place that we're from. Thank you very much, Ruth. You know, I, I kept thinking about 
the phrase that you just mentioned of your mom, just to ask the next question, yo no me quiero ir. Uh, in Argentina, we say yo, no? With the accent, with the way, yo no me quiero ir. And, and I start thinking about, you know, both, both of you have these multiple immigrations, multiple exiles. And when we talk about the Latino and Latina landscape today in, in, in the US, we cannot avoid the type of immigration. It's not the only topic we should be talking about, but we cannot avoid this topic. And I do wonder whether or not we can reflect a little bit about uh, this phrase, yo no me quiero ir, um, uh, as these multiple immigrations that multiple of, of your, your, your families have from Eastern Europe, from Turkey. I know Marjorie, I think that at some point, I think that I read that your parents went from also from Eastern Europe to Turkey and from there to Marseille and from there they came there. I always tell the story of my grandmother, one of my grandmothers who was coming from Russia. He, uh, her grand, my grand grandmother was pregnant from Russia. They stopped in Belgium. She was born in the port of Belgium where they were stuck there. Uh, she got uh, an ID from Uruguay because it was the first stop they had, but she never lived there. And she lived until she was in her 60s in Argentina without Argentinian ID. So she was a real Russian who was born in Belgium with an Uruguayan ID who spent all her life without uh, almost never leaving from Argentina, except for one time she went to Chile, uh, 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 all her life without an Argentinian ID. But of course, she was the most Argentinian person I could imagine. But thinking about these multiple immigrations uh, and the idea, yo no me quiero ir, uh, I, and thinking a little bit about all these multiple experiences and what the Jewish immigration experiences, and I want to emphasize this multiplicity, can help us and not help us to illuminate a little bit uh, all the suffering that many Latin Americans, uh, Latin, Latinas and Latinos, especially many of them with native backgrounds, but not only, uh, are suffering today in the US because it is true that we don't hear uh, more about Ch ch children in cages, or we don't hear about more the camps, but we do know that they still exist and they're still ongoing. Um, uh, not to talk about the separation of families. What that experience of multiple exiles and multiple immigrations you have had uh, in the Latin American Jewish experience can help us to illuminate, but at the same time, sometimes not the experiences that today many Latinos and Latinas are going through. Thank you, Santiago. Uh, I, I'm having this conversation with uh, many friends of mine, my generation, maybe uh, two years older than me. And we always, lately we are saying, pero yo, pero yo no quise irme. It's like me, me forzaron, like I had to, my parents, um, the politics, the history. I think a lot of us, have never wanted to, I, I never wanted to leave Chile. Uh, I don't regret having come to America, having created a, a beautiful family here. Um, I am, there's a side of me that is very grateful for the opportunities granted to me. At the same time, I must say that I created my own opportunities because if you don't work extremely hard in this society, you fall down the cracks. But I like to say that um, I, and I think Ruth feels the same, I carry all of these exiles with me. 
uh, I have here my book that my husband just uh, finished reading. I published it in 1995. My grandparents left from Odessa, Sevastopol, Turkey, Marseille. My father was born in Marseille um, and then arrived to Chile when he was three months old. Um, the exile of um, my, uh, my paternal grandfather from, um, let's say, Galicia to uh, Austria, Vienna, to Chile. Those exiles are very real for me. And as a, as a Jewish person, they're always, they're always with me. And that's why I have such a close identification with the braceros, with the unaccompanied minors, with the children in the cages. I feel it could have been my family. Mm. Unfortunately, I think here, this, I, I, the narrative of America and of Canada has brutally changed. Canada is not this perfect country without racism, on the contrary, the treatment of the native indigenous population is abominable. But I think here you, you have to uh, uh, comply with the way of being. Um, if you're Jewish, you must belong to a synagogue. Uh, you have to have Thanksgiving. Diversity really means uniformity but not true diversity where you can be yourself. You can not follow the calendars in a date uh, for a dinner party where you can be accepted, where uh, you can speak with an accent without trying to hide it. Mm -hmm. So whoever comes here suffers. And maybe all immigrants suffer. Some, I feel I didn't suffer because I came with my family. I suffered emotionally in a tremendous way. I did not suffer uh, starvation or danger, but I just went back to Georgia to see my mother who still lives in Georgia in Athens, who is 92. And I told my husband, when my mother is gone, I will never come back to Georgia, never. Because for the first time after almost 35 years, I remember everything that happened to me. I've never experienced that post-traumatic stress before. I remember how they talked to me and say, don't speak to her, she's a speak. Don't speak to her, she's a Jew. How horrible sentences were said to me. In America, we don't invite ourselves. And I just realized, why am I remembering this now? I think it's the climate of the country, it's the black matters. Black Lives Matter, it's the Me Too movement, it's uh, the horrific behavior of the Republican Party, which they're all murderers, with the exception of a few. Yeah. So it was hard for me, and yet not hard for my sister, because she accommodated, she became an American. Mm. She did everything Americans do, from baby showers to uh, uh, you know, wedding showers, everything I was not. And I think also this is why I clash with my sister because it's a clash of looking at the world. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I don't want to be so um, showing a disappointing side of life. I am hopeful that 
there is tremendous goodwill in this society. There is a tremendous courage and tremendous courage in many parts of the world. I just heard that Iranians against the Iranian government are visiting Israel for the first time. Maybe they will stay there. And all, all dictatorships crumble. Stalin, Lenin, Ceausescu, and Trump that is a dictator, he will crumble too. But the immigration is not easy. Border crossing is not easy. And the history of the Jews, they didn't want to go anywhere. They felt that they were Poles, German, Austrian. But you always have an outside gaze telling us, you Jews, you don't belong. Even if you don't want to be Jewish, believe me, somebody will tell you, you are a Jew. This is the, the burden we carry. So um, overall for me and for my children, that were born here and uh, raised in a very Chilean household, I, I think they have the best of both worlds. The American way, which is also very good, and the Chilean way. And I think if we could, my mother always said to me, take the best of both worlds. And that's, that's a lesson I want to share with others, with my students, with aspiring writers. Take your Latino identity, take your American identity, and mix it in the best of ways. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Ruth? Yeah, that was really wonderful, Marjorie. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, let me come back to, you know, the whole issue of crossing borders and, you know, Jews crossing borders in the 20s and 30s to get to Latin America, and now people crossing the borders largely from Central America and Mexico to get to the United States. And there are a lot of interesting parallels to consider. And I think we have to remember like how desperate many of these Jewish immigrants and refugees were in the teens and 20s and 30s um, when they left uh, Europe and they they just needed to get out. And most of them were completely penniless, um, as I know from my own family. And I just wanted to share this anecdote because it's kind of interesting that my maternal grandfather, my Zayde, as we call him since he was Yiddish speaking, he was actually supposed to go to Buenos Aires um, <laughs> and because he had a sister, he had an older sister who had already left Russia for Buenos Aires. And so he thought he had gotten a ticket to Buenos Aires, but his ship landed in La Habana. And he said, but wait a minute, I, I'm <laughs> supposed to go to Buenos Aires. And they said to him, no, this ship, this is like the last stop. It's, it's here and it's in La Habana. You can either stay here or go back to Russia. And he said, no, I'll stay here. Meanwhile, his sister was waiting for him in, in Buenos Aires. And the two of them were so poor, they, you know, they weren't able to, to reunite. And it was always, it was many, many years later when my grandparents were uh, not only, you know, refugees in New York, but they had by then retired and moved to Miami Beach. It was at that point that they finally felt they had enough security and money to finally make the trip to Buenos Aires and for them to reunite with the sister. So as a result, I actually have some cousins in Buenos Aires um, that, that I have visited. So all of this to say is that, you know, that, that it was all pretty chaotic, this, this immigration process, I think just as it is today. And, um, 
they didn't know exactly where they, where they were going to land. They thought they thought they were going one place and they ended up um, another place. Um, and um, but it was it was their desperation, um, their poverty and um, and their huge desire for a better life and also to help the families back at home, whether to send money to them or get them out of their countries and to reunite in, in Cuba in this case. And we can't forget that the reason Jews went to Latin America was because they were unwelcome in this America. Right. They, they didn't go to Latin America because, oh, yeah, I really want to go to Cuba. It wasn't that at all. Or I really want to go to Chile or Argentina. Many of them, I would say the majority of them were trying to get into the United States. But there was an Immigration and Nationality Act passed in 1924. Um, our xenophobia in the United States goes back many, many generations. Um, there was this terrible xenophobia and they had a quota system. Um, with very clear numbers of how many numbers of people could be accepted, um, particularly from Southern and Eastern Europe. So, um, and most Jews were in those areas and the quota numbers were very few. It was very hard, um, nearly impossible to get into the United States. And as we know, during the Holocaust, the United States did not open its doors to, to Jews that were about to be put in concentration camps. If anything, they closed the doors. Um, and that, that all went back actually to the 19th century when there was a huge Jewish immigration to the United States. And there was a concern in the late 19th, early 20th century that too many Jews had been allowed into the United States. Um, all of this anti-Semitic and, and racist um, feeling was, was there in that period. And so the door was closed and that's what led to Jews immigrating to places like Cuba. And Cuba in particular, they went there because they were told it was very close. And even in the Yiddish press, they would say, if you can just get to Cuba, it's so close, you can almost swim to the United States. That's, you know, they didn't have all the information that we have today. And, and so they went to Cuba and many of them did eventually then hop over to the United States because they were able to come in as Cubans. Because interestingly, at that time, there was no quota against the number of Cubans that could enter or Latinos that could enter the United States. And so many of them then went to the United States, but then others fell in love with Cuba and decided to make Cuba their America. So this is very important to understand, like why did they end up there? Well, they did and they found, all of these Jews found an America in what we consider in the United States to be the other America, the lesser America to the United States, the developed, this is the developed America and the other is the underdeveloped America. So many people think about it that way. Um, and so, um, so that's how that happened. Um, but when we think today of all of the people that are trying to come over, um, so many desperate um, people trying to cross the border, the US-Mexico um, border, which Gloria Saldúa, you know, called, you know, una herida abierta, an open wound, um, it's it's an open wound because you know indeed that border is a creation of colonization right I mean you know this this was territory that once belonged to Mexico and it was you know it was taken away and so um, and so when I think of you know people trying to reunite their families you know um, families from Central America and from Mexico and other places and they're trying to reunite half of the families here and half of the families there and all they're trying to do is reunite it's not that different from what Jewish people were doing in the 20s and 30s as well they were separated there was family separation there was an effort to reunite and it was you know it was a horrible and difficult journey for many of them to come across the ocean 
um, et cetera. But what, what Jewish immigrants had, even though they were the other, they had been the other in Europe and in many ways they became the other again in Latin America, but nevertheless, they had what we call white skin privilege and they could, you know, the, the ability to pass with white skin, the majority of them, maybe not all, because when I think of my Sephardic family being somewhat darker and sometimes, you know, being, you know, viewed as, as dark and not white or whatever, but nevertheless, I would say the majority have that ability to, to pass with white skin privilege. And that's what immigrants coming over today and being held and kids being held in cages and so on don't have that white skin privilege. They're immediately pegged as other just because of racial, um, you know, racial markers. Um, that is very different. That, that creates a different situation from that of Jewish immigrants. Um, but certainly the xenophobia <clears throat> that existed when Jews immigrated and that exists now when people are trying to immigrate from Latin America to um, to the United States is is very, very similar. And like Marjorie says, I mean, I, I, I really feel when I read these stories about families being separated, you know, um, undocumented, you know, parents being sent back and kids being left here or vice versa. And these are these are really, really um, horrible and um, heartbreaking things. And when I read read about them, I feel them very closely, even if our situation was not exactly the same. I think about, you know, my maternal grandmother leaving Poland on her own and leaving all of her family behind with the hope that she will be able to bring them to to Cuba one day, but not knowing. Um, living with that uncertainty and not knowing if she'll ever be reunited with them. And so that having that feeling allows me to have some, you know, deep empathy for what is happening with immigrants um, crossing over um, today to the United States. Thank you very much, Ruth and Marjorie, for your, for your answers. So uh, this podcast actually started to actually be thought after Ruth uh, published in also in Open Plaza uh, a, a very, very good article in the context of the explosion in Israel-Palestine, uh, where she was actually reflecting on a Latin American Jewish perspective on this. And, you know, uh, probably everyone who is hearing and is hearing that we're talking about Jews in Latin America and Jewish perspective given what has happened in the last two months in the world, will also ask the question about this issue that actually was already touched a little bit by Marjorie, but I would like to come back to this a little bit more. Is, and I would like to ask a little bit is, uh, what is different or not when we talk about Latin American Jewish perspective about Israel-Palestine? What uh, our histories in Latin America, coming from Latin America, in Latin America, in the US, can help us to understand uh, what is happening in Israel Palestine, perhaps similarly or different than others. Uh, so I would like uh, to reflect not only on what is happening domestically in the US, but also internationally. So if you have any, uh, I'm sure you have a lot of insights to, to offer, but if you don't mind to offer some of them. Well, I, my insights are, are brief. Um... Uh, as I mentioned to you, Santiago, uh, for example, my grandfather lived, the one that emigrated from the Ukraine, lived in the town of Quillota, and his best friends are really, you know, they say some of my best friends are Jews, but some of his best friends were uh, Palestinians uh, from, I think it was called Gibola, I don't know the town, Christians, and they had a lot in common. Um, you know, the, uh, the sense of humor, uh, the sense of being outsiders. Um, 
And that has changed. And I remember about three years ago in a restaurant in the south of Chile, I met this wonderful editor that edited my first book, um, the uh, son of Palestinian immigrants. We met after so many years in, in Chiloé, out of all places, a, a very remote island in the south of Chile. He said, you know, the only Jews I like are the Agosines. In those situations, you're not going to argue, you use humor. And I said, why? He said, because they were the only decent Jews that uh, your grandpa Taylor made the, the wedding suit for my father and for me. Uh, we laughed, we didn't say much, but this is what I see. Um, I, of course, believe in the dignity of all people. I am against the new settlements of, by Israeli fanatics. I am against evictions and I am against humiliation. At the same time, I believe in Israel very much. I am not uh, a fanatical Zionist. Maybe I was when I was 15 years old, but I believe that if, if some, if Americans are having anti-Jewish laws, which I don't pass this by me, where will I go? I will not go to Chile. I will not go to Germany. I will not go to Austria. I feel I have a place to go. It's Israel. I truly believe that. At the same time, Israel is a nation that has uh, been independent for 75 years. And the world is always questioning the right of Israel to defend itself. I understand that sometimes Israel uses uh, very, very uneven uh, powers. My heart breaks when they enter into Gaza and bomb all the buildings. On the other hand, like Fiddler on the Roof would say, what country tell its enemies that the civilian population should evacuate. Israel is very much alone in the world. It has no negotiating partners in the nearby uh, area. Uh, the Arab Emirates is an economic decision. Bahrain is economic decision. Saudi Arabia is an economic decision. We need to make peace with the Palestinians. You make peace with your enemy. You don't make peace with business partners. Um, I also think that uh, unfortunately, the Israelis are losing the, the battle and the Jews are losing the battle uh, because there's so much more clever propaganda against us Jews. There is a terrible increase of anti-Semitism in Austria, in Germany, in Belgium, in the United States, who could deny the persecution of Jews? Uh, Israel is uh, an imperfect democracy, but they have members of, uh, the, of the Arab world, the Arab Israelis as part of the parliament. And Israelis believe in, except maybe the Orthodox, they believe in equal rights for women. The gay world is accepted. A woman could have a child 
without, with artificial insemination without a partner paid by the Israeli state. What I'm saying, that Israel has accomplished very wonderful things in the field of justice. Uh, Israelis have bad propaganda. They are always there when catastrophe hits, like the Surfside building in Miami, but we don't recognize it. Um, uh, and Italy was not anti-Semitic during the Holocaust, even though they had Mussolini. Italy hit its Jews. There are manifestations in Rome, in Florence. Uh, uh, Austria has a very much right-wing government, very similar to the beginning of, of, of Nazism. I am very aware that you must look at the signs a lot of Jewish people miss the signs and believe things will not be so bad and we are Germans and we are Austrian, but things got bad. We are entering a very dangerous path and I am, I am concerned and I know my Chilean friends from the liberal left and much closer to the left than to the middle of the left, they are really seriously thinking that if the next president of Chile is a communist and a devout anti-Semitic anti person recognized by the Simon Wiesenthal Center, if this guy named Hadwell wins, my friends tell me that they're gonna leave the country. So this is serious. This is something that not to be taken lightly. They stabbed a rabbi from Chabad in, in Boston, in the Boston Commons. Not one comment from the Massachusetts Senate, not one comment from uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and I find all of that quite alarming. So, so uh, I am worried, um, you know, um, I, I don't favor Jewish fanatics, but I definitely favor the sovereignty of the state of Israel, absolutely. Thank you very much, Marjorie Ruth. Well, Marjorie has already said so much, so I don't want to take too much more time with this, but just maybe to add some anecdotal thoughts, I guess. Um, and, you know, this for me is a very complex issue because I have family in Israel. I have family both on my Ashkenazi side. Um, one of my uncles was a co-founder of a kibbutz, actually a, a kibbutz uh, founded by Latin American Jews. And it's uh, a, called Kibbutz Gash, where everybody speaks Spanish in, in that kibbutz. And I've, I've been to visit there. Um, and then I have my Sephardic relatives on my father's side of the family, part of the family that instead of going from Turkey to Cuba, went from Turkey to Israel in the 60s and are among the few people that, that speak Ladino um, to me. And so I love them very much. And then I have friends from Cuba, Cuban Jewish friends who left uh, Cuba for Israel um in the last few years and uh, two of them are young people that actually appear in a documentary that i made they're afro-cuban jewish sephardic jewish and they left cuba and recreated a new life for themselves in israel so so my connection to israel is complex because of that because i i know people that are good people um but then at the same time I don't approve of what the government has done. I don't approve of the militarization of Israel and, and all of the oppression that has happened to Palestinian people. And, and of course, the displacement and evictions of Palestinians from their home is something that it has that that issue has to be dealt with. We, we can't 
expect to have a home for ourselves as Jews in Israel and take the home away from others who have a home there as well. So the question of home and finding a way to do that peacefully is, is very, very crucial. I really hope that will happen one day. One interesting anecdote I wanted to share is that um, I have a wonderful colleague at the University of Michigan who's a great writer, um, Palestinian, and a very old friend, Anton Shamas, um, who wrote a beautiful book many years ago, a memoir called Arabesques. And, um, and one day he presented me with the most incredible and special gift. He gave me a Bible, an Old Testament, a printed Old Testament in Ladino. And I had never seen anything like that where I could read Genesis with Hebrew letters and it was Spanish. And he thought to give me that very beautiful, very meaningful, considerate gift, a Palestinian giving this to me, um, knowing about my Jewish background. So I think that that for me is an anecdote I want to share because there's so many possibilities for peace. Um, certainly on, you know, on that day-to-day -day level, on that grassroots level, there's so many efforts going on for peace. And I think we have to keep supporting those efforts as much as possible, given that we ourselves as Jewish Latinas and Latinos found refuge um, in a place when we really needed it, when we really needed a sense of home, and we need to do that for others as well. Thank you very much, Ruth. Uh, thank you very much, Marjorie. And I would like to finish with that thought, uh, the understanding that there are other histories that we can construct. There are other memories that can mobilize us, and there are other relationships that we can build. Uh, and the Latin American Jewish experience and the Latino-Latina Jewish experience can actually help us, could be one uh, contribution to the many in order to start building this. So I will encourage everyone who has been listening to actually check the last two books of our speakers, uh, the maps of memory of Marjorie Agosin and the letters from Cuba from Ruth Behar. I thank all the staff from HDI, uh, Open Plaza for helping us to actually put this together. Uh, and uh, I uh, thank everyone else who have been listening to our podcast uh, for, and uh, hopefully this is going to encourage you to actually engage with exploration of Latin American Jewish experiences, Latin American Jewish poetry and writing from now on. Thank you very much and goodbye, everyone. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Macarena. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.